Hello, I'm Megan DeGraff, and this is Below the Canopy, a podcast brought to you by Community Forests International. In this episode, I speak to Shalyn Jowdry, a Mi'kmaq conservation ecologist and narrative artist who works in many different media. I learn how Shalyn has been able to blend her background as an ecologist with her art, the importance of preserving the Mi'kmaq language, and the stories that she's most excited to tell. Let's get into it. Hi, Shalyn. Hi. Thank you for joining us. I appreciate it very much that you've uh, made space and made time for this interview. Would you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and about your community? Mm. Well, Delawisi Shalyn Jodri, Delawi Gaspo Wifakwigi Olsit Guk. So, my name is Shalyn Jodri, and I do live in Southwest Nova Scotia. I live in the community in English, it's called Bear River First Nation. But I just want to say I didn't actually grow up here. I moved here as an adult. I lived all over Canada growing up. So my community specifically of Olsitguk, of Bear River First Nation, it's a very small community in southwest Nova Scotia. And many of the people here, you know, as I've come to know them and care deeply about the people here that you know, have come to know how much they they still spend on the land, you know, that they they know the the woods and the rivers around here. But however, we we actually don't have any fluent Mi'kmaq language speakers left in our community. And and those are some very important aspects about who I am today. I learn from the community about the land and I'm also trying to reclaim our all new our Mi'kmaq language and and help bring it back to the community. Would you mind also telling me a little bit more about yourself and your a little bit about your background and your interests? Mm-hmm. So I call myself a storyteller or a narrative artist, which for me includes being a poet, an oral storyteller, a theater writer, like a playwright and also theater actor and podcast producer. So a lot of things having to do with words. So I, I, when people ask me if I'm an artist, I say, yes, so, so many different types of art, but, but they really uh, revolve around words. And I'm also so passionate about nature, about ecosystems. And so I ended up going to university for environmental biology, for ecology, really. And so then I later started working in that field once I moved here to my community. So I've been working on species at risk and ecological conservation for over 15 years, but also weaving in my my background and my love of our old new Mi'kmaq culture and traditions. So the songs and stories and understandings of the world and reclaiming language, which, you know, we can talk about, and also these arts. So as a, as a poet and, and as a storyteller, weaving that into my work as an ecologist. So I've been doing that for over 16 years. I can tell because I started the work when my, my oldest daughter was born. So just to pick up a little thread there that you touched on. So you, you are a conservation ecologist and you're an artist who is passionate about as you said, many forms of narrative art. You seem to find a lot of meaning from being able to blend your background as an ecologist with your art. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how you've been able to weave those various passions together. I had to stop listening to the people who say that you can only be one or two things. 
I remember being a teenager and I had all these similar passions. I was one of the leaders of the high school environmental club. I was already publishing poetry. I was you know, canoeing on, on weekends. I was composing piano music and doing all these different types of things. And, and somebody at the, at the high school was asking me, you know, what I wanted to study, the one singular thing and the one singular type of person I was going to, you know, occupation I was going to have. I said, well, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. And they said, no, no, that you, you, you can't do that. And in my 20s, people were telling me, you can only do the arts or science. You can't do both, Shallon. Otherwise, it looks like you're not being serious. And so I really took that to heart in my 20s. And it was very difficult because I wanted to do them all. I think that's something that we're up against is, you know, this idea that you study one thing, then you work at one thing. But to make a complete human, you know, for me, I needed to be able to to do a few of these things. Otherwise, I felt imbalanced, you know. And so if I didn't take time to write stories or sing songs, if I didn't do those artistic things, I didn't... I didn't feel well. I don't know how else to explain it. It's like my my spirit was was hungry, you know, or sad. And then luckily, I really was able to take to heart the teachings of Elder Albert Marshall about two-eyed seeing. Like, well, two-eyed seeing is also looking at different methodologies, not just in looking at ecology from a two-eyed seeing perspective, from a Mi'kmaq cultural perspective, and from a mainstream science perspective, but also two-eyed seeing like the science and the arts, right? So can I bring in my arts into ecology? And can I bring ecology into my arts? So I, I began by telling Mi'kmaq-based stories in the conservation meetings and finding ways to create new stories from the ecology lessons that I was learning and make new short stories out of those or poetry out of those and then share those teachings in my in my arts world. So just it just started like that and then now they're just completely interwoven and I do yeah there's really no separation for me now it's just the work that I do and how I choose to have my methodology it sounds a bit as though being a scientist makes you a more fulfilled artist, mm. and being an artist makes you a, a more fulfilled scientist at the same time. Right. Which I really appreciate. Some of your most recent work, including your play Ella Bultig, deals with two-eyed seeing or et tuapmumk, that is using both Indigenous and Western knowledges or ways of knowing to understand the world. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit, Shalyn, about why you think two-eyed seeing methodologies are important for conservation efforts. Mm -hmm. Well, we're really, we're really thankful for Elder Albert Marshall and Mardina Marshall, who has since passed on, to help us with this conceptual image about why it's important to go between and weave and incorporate different perspectives. Because for the longest time, even remembering how I was trained in university, for the longest time that it was just assumed that this way of seeing ecology, you know, the study of ecosystems and, and other related sciences, that this comes from a certain tradition that has been 
passed on and for many, many generations, and that it has been honed as this fine craft and that that nobody else needs to change it, you know, is kind of how I saw how we were being taught mainstream science. But yet what is happening so often is that when we're living our lives in, in mainstream North America, the things that we we do, we sometimes forget that these systems come from a specific language or groups of languages, like European languages and cultures, and that really there actually are other ways of seeing and doing things. And I think that has been a really huge perspective opening for a lot of mainstream trained ecologists. Maybe we have certain linguistic or cultural biases in how we're doing things, and maybe there is another way to see. So I'm so grateful for the Mi'kmaq and other indigenous ecologists and philosophers and elders who have been saying this for decades and decades and decades. And finally, you know, that there's been this opening in the last, uh, the last 15, 16 years. But also I, I still attribute it to even things like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, you know, report, even though that had to do with the residential school system in Canada the recognition that indigenous cultures in Canada and languages and perspectives and worldviews have been systematically taken away and and tried to have been eradicated from families and individuals and nations for so long. And so it is everyone's responsibility and duty to make sure in Canada, you know, and in North America and Turtle Island, to make sure that we're actually opening our spaces and thoughts and projects to other ways of seeing this work. And so that includes in conservation ecology. So not only does it sound lovely to say, okay, well, maybe there's other ways of looking at the land you know, from from other indigenous perspectives and languages, you know, from where we're working, wherever we're working. But also now there's this recognition though, and this deeper understanding in Canada and hopefully in the United States, but all over, that actually there's this legal responsibility to now be upholding and including indigenous voices. So not only does it just sound nice to have another perspective, but sometimes it really is another perspective that gives you new ideas about how how to do the projects how to work on you know this work that we're trying to trying to do how to inspire more people how to make change how to live in a sustainable way and and also just more information about ecosystems you know some of those things are embedded in the languages and cultures and you know perspectives and life ways of indigenous people not only is it just our, you know, duty to ask other indigenous people, you know, what they think about this ecology program, but now there, there's just like this bountiful, you know, amount of new information and ideas and energy, and so that's that's how I'm going about at it. Is that not only is it important, you know, intellectually, but it's really exciting, and I'm really hoping that we will together. Indigenous, non-Indigenous, that that we will create new ecology programs and concepts that are reinvigorating, you know, our energy as ecologists and and finding, uh, yeah, finding new projects. Can you give an example in your work or in your everyday 
life or in the the marriage of your various interests where you've seen two-eyed seeing practiced well with great effect? Well, there's so many different types because just to say that there's two-eyed seeing, you know, people can do that many, 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 many different ways. So from the very basic, the very basic way is to open up your project and include many, not one, <laughs> many local Indigenous people. And so, for example, here we've been working on species at risk in southwest Nova Scotia for, for over a decade. That work and that conversation then went to asking elders to share information about species at risk and habitats. But one of the things that they kept saying was the youth need to be reconnected to the land even though we're talking specifically about species at risk. And so when I went back to the biologist years ago and I said, well, you know, the elders, you know, they listen to me ask the questions about the Blanding's turtle and the Eastern ribbon snake and so on. But their, their answer oftentimes though, is that the young people need to be reconnected to the land or if they have always been connected, then more, you know? And so a different way of seeing knowledge is actually really looking at well what is your relationship and your deepening of your understanding to land and so what the elders were trying to teach early on is that it's not just two-eyed seeing doesn't just mean what is Mi'kmaq information because looking at information is actually an English concept of what knowledge is you know it's noun based right and so it was Mordina Marshall who was who was trying to make sure that I could understand this, though, that from a Mi'kmaq perspective, really to look at it like, well, what what is that deepening of that relationship? And it's very individual based. So you don't just you don't get that from asking an elder information. You have to then do it. You can hear stories, but those are to inspire you to do it. And so I see more of our people, Mi'kmaq, in southwest Nova Scotia uh, involved in looking at land-based learning, doing youth camps, talking about how we're going to create more of those. And from those deepening of relationships connects us more to our culture and our history. And But to connect to land then, to have that relationship, then you're paying attention more. And when you're paying attention more, I think that you're even accidentally you're learning more about the Blanding's turtle or, you know, as you're paying attention more, you realize how much you need the land. And so it influences how you make decisions about nedigalump, about harvesting, about sustaining yourself, about living in balance with, with nature. And so when the elders were saying, giving all of these ad advice, they were answering a much deeper and crucial question, which wasn't just, what is the population of Blanding's turtles today versus 50 years ago? That's an important question. But the deeper question was really trying to get at how do we share land and water with other species? How do we pay attention enough that we will know if we're pushing them out? You know, and that reminded me about one of our Mi'kmaq stories uh, about a long winter. And so I started to share this story back with our youth, with ecologists, with you know, even on stages. And so in some <laughs> very convoluted way to say that this is one type of two-eyed seeing is to say that species at risk recovery work is also about sharing the, and resharing the Mi'kmaq stories and teachings, reconnecting people to land, 
and to sit in circle with each other. And I feel like that work in coming together, sharing story, being in circle and reconnecting to land is part of what's really growing and what's important, I think, in in the work. Sort of picking up that thread of storytelling, I want to shift back to talking about you and some of your work. What stories are you most excited to tell right now? The stories that I'm really excited to share are stories that are either old Mi'kmaq stories told in a new way and sharing those with everybody, with ecologists, with our youth and communities, with with everybody. And also stories about species and land and ecosystems and finding ways to create new stories, like putting those teachings into new stories I'm always trying to figure out how to do that. I, I have the story about a speckled turtle who's reclaiming her language, but I put in there some of the teachings that I learned from the biologist working on Blanding's turtles. And so just crafting these new stories or poems or theater productions. So what's exciting is the next new story that I'm thinking of, of how can I put in those teachings and share it with people? And that's really exciting to me. You mentioned in a previous conversation that you are interested in using your storytelling talents for peace building and peacemaking. Mm -hmm. And so I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about the power of words and how words can be used to create common ground between people from different backgrounds or cultures. When I think to how did I how did I have this idea and this feeling that sharing stories could also help build understanding between people. I think back to Mi'kmaq Wulostukwe culture camp when I was 15, and I was in my first sharing circle with those elders and other youth, and the power of those circles. So I've been in sharing circles or talking circles the rest of my life, you know, for decades. And what I see happen is that sometimes if somebody has a misunderstanding, they don't understand each other, they don't trust each other, or we don't know the inner workings of somebody. So I believe like, for example, you can be a teenager at a camp. You can be a little bit irritated or frustrated with somebody for the way that they just did something to you, but you get into a circle and you hear them start to open up and talk about their life or why they do what they do, good or challenging, but they open up and they, they talk about their life and they tell their story and you go, oh, I didn't really see that part of them. I didn't understand that, that inner part of them. And, you, and I had so much more compassion and empathy for people after hearing their story and what makes them tick or why. And, and by the end of that camp, you just feel so close to everybody. I don't know if... <laughs> You know, if, if people listening, you know, have, have had that kind of experience before, but it, it, it really trained me so early on that sometimes we misunderstand each other or we find it difficult to trust or we think negatively about other people when we don't really understand them and we don't know their story. Not to say that once you hear somebody's story, then everything will be everything will be peachy because that's that's not what I'm saying. But the power of sharing stories about what has happened or your 
your life story or your understanding of something, and you share that story with somebody who's fully listening, and then they can share their story with you, and you're, you're fully listening. I think that that has the power to transform your perception of them. And then if it informs and and transforms your perception, then it will transform the way that you communicate and relate after them. And so the more that I feel that I can share, for example, why the the, the work that I pick. So to, to stand on a stage or around a fire and share in theater format or poetry, I can share these stories, I feel like then the people around in the audience will have more depth of understanding and be able to have more compassion, understanding, perspective, so that then when they get back to their work, whatever it is, or in their own communities, that they have this better starting point to have this conversation about politics in Canada, or what does reconciliation mean, or what are the possibilities of including Indigenous people in their own work if they aren't Indigenous. And if they are, part of hearing our own stories of strength and healing, being in that audience, I think is also helpful to our own people, you know, that, that they can hear these stories and feel good about who we are and where we've come from, and also just hearing those you know, those celebratory songs and language and, and just to see our strength and that that's medicine too. That was super. Thank you, Shalyn. I really appreciate that answer. Yeah. I know that in recent years, you have dedicated yourself to learning your Mi'kmaq or Olnu language. Mm-hmm. You mentioned earlier that there are no fluent speakers in your community. And I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about why learning your language is important to you as an ecologist and as a narrative artist? I, I always, you know, since being a teenager, I always thought it would be neat to learn my Mi'kmaq or all new language. But now it's much, 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 much deeper than that. It's not just neat or cool. It's that the more that I learn about the language, just the you know, very beginnings over the last two decades or so, the more that I'm opening those doors, the more that I realize, wow, just like what I was saying before about Mi'kmaq culture uh, in its entirety, but the more these doors are opening in my mind, my mind has been expanding incredibly because I've been given this other way of articulating how to see the world around me, how to see relationship, how to see truth, so many things that I didn't even, I didn't even realize that my world was so boxed in until opening my mind in this way and learning Mi'kmaq language is just one of those ways that my mind has been expanding. And so to see the world focusing on the verbs instead of the nouns, to see colors as verbs, to see that things are constantly in change and flux and transition, to see that if I use the Mi'kmaq language while sitting inside, I'm still referring to nature because something blue is actually the color or looking like sky. You know, something's brown is is looking like or colored like like dirt and earth and ground. And so it is drawing me absolutely back to nature. The more language that I learn, because our language, our Mi'kmaq language comes from this very land. And so the more that I learn about our language, I'm learning more about ecosystems. And so how things are called and named in the language sometimes refers to their ecological process or their relationship to another species. 
the oak tree is named for here she hides it, which is referring to the acorn. So just by learning the language and how things are named, I'm learning more about the ecosystem and these landscapes. And I'm also learning about the history of our people and culture. And so what do relationships mean? And in our language, that there's not just first, second, third person, but there's fourth person. If that's the person who's connected to the third person, because you don't know that fourth, that, that other person is even farther away. And so the way that the, the grammar is in the language, you know, as I've learned about the two different kinds of we, there's we as in including you who I'm speaking to, or there's we excluding you who I'm speaking to, that there's single dual and plural, that there's a dual. Why is there dual? Why is two people working on something so specific and important in the language and in that, that there's this whole conjugation just for two people? That means that in our culture for thousands and thousands of years, the difference between doing something by yourself, doing something with two people, and then doing something, you know, three or more that was so common uh, that, that it had its own grammar, you know, or conjugation. So these are the things that it makes me think about. So I think about, as I learn our language, I think about thousands and thousands of years of culture, and I'm trying to understand the relationship between the people and the landscape. And so learning this language is helping me just see different, see new possibilities of how to see each other and even language, how to see language and how to see reality. And so this helps me as an ecologist because I'm then looking at the land with more possibility and I'm seeing the ecosystem much more, not not abstract, it's very literal. The ecosystem functioning, the the relationship between species is very, very direct in the language. And so I'm learning more about the land as I learn our language. And so now I can't really imagine being a Mi'kmaq ecologist without you know trying to incorporate and learn the, the Mi'kmaq language and and some people are feeling overwhelmed that they will never you know go from a non-speaker to a speaker but any little bit of the language i think is just really really helpful amazing thank you shalyn is there anything that you want that's really burning for you that you think is a really important point that you'd like to make or something that you feel strongly about that you want to mention hmm. when i think about Mi'kmaq perspectives about land, not just language, that it also helps me think about land and land ownership, land stewardship in a different way. So I think that it's important for all of our non-Indigenous partners in conservation work to also recognize that there is a different perspective about relationship to land that includes uh, ownership is is a very specific you know concept like how do you how can you survey around a certain area of land and say i own this when our elders are teaching us that we don't own land so this is a completely different you know perspective and so it creates even without realizing it it can create animosity between indigenous and non-indigenous people about about land you know about what are the conservation projects happening you know, different places. Well, who owns that? Is that private land? Is that, you know, crown land? But, you know, when our elders talk about what is our responsibility to land and that we all share territory. Now, we can be stewards of different areas, but I, I try to think about that, you know, when when we're, we're working together on projects is understanding that this 
word that we use, reconciliation, this political kind of reconciliation. What we're asking and requiring of non-Indigenous people is to think also more openly and broadly their perspective about land ownership and the history of stewardship and roles and responsibilities towards land. And sometimes, you know, it's it's a part of a difficult conversation about land. But uh, again, when we talk about two-eyed seeing and, and if you mean it, then you also have to have some of the difficult conversations. And so I just welcome bringing in, you know, language, bringing in elders, bringing in story are all I find very helpful in those difficult conversations to open the minds of how can we do this work in this project on different landscapes and different plots of land, you know, that have different titles associated with them. And even if we can't figure out that ownership part, different people have different claims to different land. Let's at least keep sharing stories and language and sitting in circle. And I think some of those difficult conversations will get a little bit easier in time. I think that was the perfect thing to end on. So thank you for that, Chalyn. I'm glad you thought to bring that up as a point that you really wanted to to make. Yeah, yeah. When I think about the work that we're that we're all doing together, that's just one of the things that keeps coming up. I just wanted to add. That was Mi'kmaq writer, storyteller, and ecologist Shalyn Jowdry, and I'm Megan DeGraff. Thanks so much for listening to Below the Canopy, a podcast produced by Community Forest International with audio engineering provided by Robin Edgar. Thanks to the Government of Canada for supporting this project. Stay tuned for our next episode, and to learn more about our work, visit forestsinternational.org.